everyone. My name is Kim and this is The Contemporary Educator, a podcast dedicated to all my fellow teachers out there who are trying to balance the many demands placed on The Contemporary Educator. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I live on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations and I feel very privileged and honored to be able to live, work, and play on these lands. Today, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the idea of collective trauma. So as of July 1st here in Canada, or at least in BC, um, the mask mandate was lifted and most of the restrictions around COVID were lifted. So that means now you can have gatherings still up to 50 people. Uh, So there's not going to be any like big concerts or anything yet, but definitely paving the way for that. Uh, Masks are no longer mandatory in stores and it came really suddenly. As of July 1st, I had my first dose of the vaccine, but not my second. My second came on July 5th. And and I'm considered like a a first frontline worker. So I would have been kind of in the throes of being able to get my vaccine before a lot of other folks would have been able to get theirs. My partner still hasn't received his second dose. So there's a lot of people out there who haven't been vaccinated yet. So all of this was lifted kind of as of July 1st. There's a lot of feelings around that. I I know this is true for myself, but I also know that it's true for a lot of my students. Uh, we were having these kind of conversations. We knew July 1st was coming and we knew that with July 1st meant the restrictions being lifted. So we were having these conversations before school got out, which was the very end of June. And a lot of students at that point were just in line to get their vaccinations, their first dose vaccinations, and many of them had gotten them kind of the first dose by the end of June. There was a lot of anxiety around this concept of return to normalcy and what our normal is going to look like and how that's going to roll out and what happens if people aren't ready to return to quote unquote normal and what happens when a lot of people are ready and are expecting everyone to be ready at the same time. So that's kind of where this podcast is coming to you from today. It's coming to you with the idea that we've all kind of experienced this collective trauma and now we're going to actually see what that means. We're going to see what collective trauma has meant for all of us and we're going to start to see the resilience in each one of us and how that differs from person to person. And it doesn't mean that one person is more or less resilient. It just means that their resilience shows in a different way. So we're going to need to be mindful of that in the coming months and particularly in September when we go back to school. I know a lot of folks in the U.S., you guys go back to school well before us. So, you know, we're going to have to be really mindful of what that resiliency actually looks like moving forward. And trauma responses are going to look really, really different in the aftermath. I talked about trauma beforehand as well. So if you're wanting some more info and insight into trauma, particularly during COVID, uh, you can go back and look at some of my past podcasts. But this is now looking at the aftermath. So not while we're still in the throes of it, in the thick of things, um, while we're all still struggling and dealing with grief and loss. This is now what happens when we've dealt with grief and loss or we're still dealing with it and now we're expected to just go back to quote unquote normal and our bereavement period is over. Just to define a collective trauma, basically it's anything in which a large group of people experience the same traumatic event at the same time which shapes new meaning and new ways of relating to the world. It's a response to a threat, real or perceived, and it fundamentally alters a demographic, population, etc., their feeling of safety. 
I think we can all safely assume that COVID is going to create that collective trauma response. When we look at collective trauma, there's a few different things that we're really talking about here. We're not only talking about the psychological reactions to a traumatic event to a, a, a large group of people, but we are also talking about the generational trauma and our ongoing kind of responses to perceived threat or ongoing threat. And in this case, when it comes to COVID, it's going to be more of a perceived threat and fear than um, necessarily a, a real threat, especially as more and more people get vaccinated. I'm not saying that we're kind of wiping out COVID and it's not going to exist. It's still going to exist, but the, the threat and danger has decreased significantly the more people get vaccinated and the more we follow certain protocols, right? I'm referencing a couple of different articles here, and if you are interested in reading more about those things, and particularly um, collective trauma and the research that's gone on behind that, most collective trauma is looking at the aftermath of, say, a natural disaster or uh, war and things like that, because COVID is still too new. There's research, there's tons of research coming out, but it's still too new to have a lot of really in-depth research uh, around what people's experience was like and more so around the aftermath of COVID that's going to come in the next couple of years I would think. So anyways the first article I'm going to talk about is Hirschberger, Gilad Hirschberger who wrote Collective Trauma and the Social Construction of Meaning. So I highly recommend reviewing this article because it's really interesting. Basically they're saying that trauma and collective trauma refers to generational trauma and how meaning behind a traumatic event is restructured from generation to generation and takes on new meaning. So each time we remember something, our, our memory of that thing changes somewhat and our emotion behind it changes somewhat. It can still be an emotionally charged memory years and years later, but the facts might be a little blurry. The content of that experience might be a little bit fuzzy and might be distorted upon each retelling. So this, of course, is going to happen more significantly when we talk to our children about it, who then talk to their children about it, etc., etc. And it's passed on through history, through storytelling, um, and our own experiences of these events. What Hirschberger is saying is that um, traditions of a particular threat amplifies existential concerns and increases the motivation to embed trauma into a symbolic system of meaning. It fosters the sense of a collective self that is transgenerational and promotes a sense of meaning and mitigating existential threat. Um, the sense of a historic collective also increases group cohesion and group identification to create meaning and alleviate these concerns. And the profound sense of meaning that is born out of collective trauma perpetuates the memory of the trauma and the reluctance to close the door on the past. So basically what Hirschberger is saying here is that we start to identify as a collective self. We start to understand how each of us has experienced this trauma and we identify ourselves within that collective. It helps to mitigate our experience of those concerns and that imminent threat because of the sheer volume of people who are also experiencing that same thing. It's almost like a, a sense of belonging that can be created out of that kind of trauma. With that said, Hirschberger is also referencing the fact that trauma 
as we retell it from generation to generation, uh, it shapes how we behave and we pass on a lot of those behaviors to uh, future generations and a lot of those worries and anxieties to the next generation too. Another thing that Hirschberger talks about is the challenge when there is a trauma or a situation that occurs and there's no clear perpetrator of that kind of offensive act. So that's what we dealt with with COVID, right? There was no clear perpetrator. And so what ended up happening is a lot of finger pointing towards different people that we could name and call out for this, this trauma that we were collectively experiencing. Whether it's politicians, whether it is folks who aren't masking or folks who aren't, you know, anti-vax, whatever that situation is, we are finger pointing and, and finding a name for it when we don't actually have somebody or something tangible that we can blame for all of this destruction. And he looks at when you have a trauma that doesn't have a perpetrator and how people are so adverse to closing that chapter, moving on from it and quote unquote, letting it go. And it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm using these terms loosely and, and please don't think I think trauma is just something to just let go. Cause I know that's, that's not the reality that we live in, but he looks at why it is that people might hold on to this trauma and feel the need to collectively relive this story over and over again and talk about it, you know, quite often. And even years past, people will revisit the same trauma and tell the same stories over and over again. And he looks at why that might be necessary. He draws a comparison between two tsunamis that hit in two different places at different time periods. So he looks first at a 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami which caused significant, significant devastation and killed almost 90% of the population. Then he looks at another tsunami in 1930, which had a similar magnitude in uh, Papua New Guinea, and less than 1% of the people died. So essentially, what it actually boils down to is that in Papua New Guinea, they had a history of oral storytelling, and they were passing on information about tsunamis from one generation to the next. And so people in Papua New Guinea knew that when the sea draws down, you run for the hills. This same storytelling hadn't happened in the Indian Ocean tsunami. And so in the retelling of our traumatic events over and over again, what we're doing is preparing the next generation for what to do in the event that this same situation happens. How do we protect ourselves from it? How do you keep yourself alive? And how do you keep yourself going? And so Hirschberger is really trying to highlight that this is a survival mechanism. The ongoing telling and retelling of these stories from one moment or from one generation to the next is in an attempt to prepare the future generation for what it may have to face. And historically, that has really served to essentially keep generations of people alive. And that's exactly the case that's highlighted in the tsunami incident with Papua New Guinea. So what does this mean for our students? Well, basically, we know that our students have survived this collective trauma, the same one that we have survived. However, their experience of it is going to be significantly different than ours. They've likely had to endure their parents' experience of this trauma as well. And like I often say, kids are kind of the barometer for health in our family. So we never really know how significant something is for the parents until we start to notice how the child is responding. 
with that aside, uh, what we're going to start seeing in the next year is increased preparedness. We're going to see students who are acting quickly when there's threat of illness around. That might mean increased use of masks, more children staying home when they're sick, and what we can consider is that our students will assess the threat of illness much more significantly than they would have pre-COVID. They will see illness as something that is much more daunting and much more dangerous than in past years. This could also mean a rise in mental health issues related to illness, such as OCD, hypochondria, Munchausen, many other things that, that factor into a trauma response post-trauma. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to keep harping on it, but mental health is just a response to trauma. And we've all endured one, a huge trauma, collective trauma. And so now what we're looking at here is our young people are going to be exhibiting signs of that response. And so those are the things that we need to pay attention to. For those of you who don't know what OCD is, it's obsessive compulsive disorder, and it's characterized by frequent hand washing. Um, it might also include intrusive thoughts and we often see things like hypervigilance and organization. Those are some of the things that we have kind of been encouraging kids to do during COVID. We've been encouraging regular and frequent hand washing and hand sanitizing and we have been encouraging uh, kids to be hypervigilant about mask wearing and cleanliness and orderliness and stacking your chairs at the end of the day, but spraying them first and also checking that you didn't share any of your pencils that day. So we've been encouraging this hypervigilance and it can run the risk of, for some students in their trauma response, um, becoming something a little more severe and a little more related to a mental health diagnosis like obsessive compulsive disorder. The overall things that we have seen this past year and the things that we'll likely continue to see moving into some form of normalcy, whatever that looks like where you are and whatever that looks like for you as an individual. This past year has caused a lot of decision fatigue. What that means is when you're already in a state of hypervigilance, anytime you're asked to make another decision as, as big or as small as that may be, like do you want fries with that, can sometimes be enough of a decision maker that it is causing significant fatigue over and above what you might already experience either as a student or as a parent or as a teacher. This is what we've been faced with this past year and that's not going to get any better as the time moves on. One of the challenges with quote-unquote returning to normalcy is that our level of comfort with whatever normal looks like is going to vary from person to person which means we're faced with new decisions that we didn't have to make before. When masks were mandated, it wasn't a decision whether or not we were going to wear a mask. We had to wear a mask. And so now we're going to be faced with, well, do we wear a mask? How long do I wear a mask for? Do I only wear a mask when I'm sick? And that's now a new decision. And at what point do we decide to stop wearing masks? At what point do we decide to wear them less frequently? We're gonna be faced with these new decisions that can be really challenging. They can have a lot of weight to them, even if seemingly from the outside, they don't. And that can be a really difficult place to be in. And so that's going to increase decision fatigue for all of us, for both ourselves as teachers and for our students. The other thing to be mindful of is that many of our students lost significant elements of their self and their development over these past years from clubs to travel opportunities to even free lunch programs. And so 
as we move into whatever normal looks like for us, we need to be mindful that as these things are reintroduced, our students are going to have different levels of comfort participating in them. A student who has a need for a lunch program may not feel comfortable taking a lunch program. And so how do we help to meet those needs of a student who is still at a varying degree of comfortability with pre-COVID normalcy? What Masiero et al. kind of highlight in um, their article from Individual to Social Trauma, Sources of Everyday Trauma, they highlight that interventions need to be focused on increasing awareness of how challenging the experience is so that we can build significant meaning collectively. And this can then be integrated into individuals' biography and acceptance of unpleasant memories and then readaptation to the normal life. Looking at how normal life is different from the past and how that's okay and it's okay to, to fear it and to find it challenging and overwhelming but we're looking at accepting that the past couple of years meant a lot of loss, a lot of trauma, and we're acknowledging that before asking students to find comfortability with what normal looks like. We also have to pay attention to the re-adaptation to normal life. Adaptation isn't a one-size-fits-all approach and it isn't overnight. It's a gradual return to normal. And so we wanna make sure that we're providing students with varying degrees of gradual return to normal, varying degrees of adaptive normalcy, because that's going to be what inevitably supports the outcome for all of them. And I know we, we talk about universal design all the time as teachers, and this is just one more thing that's gonna to add to our decision fatigue, but uh, we're not only now diversifying our curriculum, we're also diversifying what normal actually is and what it looks like when we go to school. With all of that said, the bottom line here is, is that we did all experience a collective trauma. And that can do one of two things. It can make it more divisive in the sense that some people are gonna respond one way and some people are gonna respond a different way. Or it can bring us together in a mutual understanding of what we've all been through. And I think as teachers, that's gonna be our next step and our obligation is to try to find a way to relate that to everyone's experience and make sure that it is collective so that no one feels isolated or alienated in their own experience. The other thing we need to do is change our definition of what normal looks like in school, especially in the first few months when we go back. And we need to make sure that we're normalizing both mask wearing and non-mask wearing, that we're normalizing you know, students who are comfortable participating in after-school activities and students who aren't, students who are in lunch programs and students who aren't yet there. And we need to make sure that we are providing a, a degree of um, flexibility around all of those different things. This is going to be a gradual step-by-step -step kind of process that we can all do together and we can work on collectively as a group. And that's going to be part of the healing too. And I think as frustrating or as difficult it can be for some people to hear the same story over and over and over again about what was lost and about what we had to survive during COVID and how difficult all of this was, the reality is, is that it's these stories that get passed down from generation to generation that helps to keep the next generation going and helps to keep them alive and helps them to understand our own responses and behaviors. There was this funny joke um, that my friend keeps making about how she can't wait till the day when she has to explain to her grandchildren why it is she's washing out every plastic bag before she puts them in the cupboard. 
And that's true. That's going to be our, our new life where we come in. The first thing we do is we wash our hands and we spray down all of our stuff before we put it into our cupboards because we all have this fear around what could happen if we don't. And it's okay to tell that story and it's okay to do that for a while until we start to feel comfortable not doing that again. But we need to make sure our students have that space to explore each thing as they adapt to this new normal. I want to end on a quote from, um, from Watson et al. that I thought was just a, a really nice kind of wrap up to our discussion about collective trauma. And the quote is, we hope that this collective trauma drives us to less division, less hatred, and facilitate more forms of understanding with the other and with what surrounds us. In other words, we need to walk the bridge that connects collective trauma and collective healing. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and I hope that there was something of value for you here and that it helped you feel like you're also a part of this collective experience that we've all lived through the past couple of years. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at teach.emote.repeat or um, find me at thecontemporaryeducator.com. 